The Poetic Podcast. In Season 2, Episode 4, Just How Safe is Dave and Every Other Poet and Artist from Modern AI. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. All right, Hal. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hello and welcome to the Poetic Podcast. That clip was from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It imagines a future led by artificial intelligence. With today's guest, we will be asking if modern AI tools can write poetry. We'll also be asking, is it a balm, is it a cob, or is it a bread roll? And is it okay for a poet to write from another viewpoint? All these questions, and more, will be explored in today's in-person episode with our black country, Boston guest poet and playwright, Dave Pitt. So without any more blethering, let's go meet Dave. Dave Pitt, hello. Hello, Jay. Finally, How we're are in you? a room together. I and know. We're not on a screen. So, for people who are coming across you for the first time, tell us who you are, what you do, and where you're from. Okay, so Dave Pitt, I'm a performance poet and a playwright as well. I put myself down as a writer and performer, which I think is kind of just enough of a catch all. Essentially, if you want me to do something, I'll do it. So, you know, just before Christmas, someone says, Do you want to be in a film? I was like, Yeah, all right. So I went and did some acting because, you know, they were paying me and that's good enough for me. What kind of film was it, Dave? They were actually shooting kind of like a test scene. So they've got the script ready. They were shooting it to kind of prove to finances that they could do it. And it's being edited at the moment and I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen with that. But yeah, I mean, that, that was really interesting. I, I haven't done any acting for years, you know, film acting. And it was just really nice to like jump back in. So yeah, basically, I, you know, if you want me to shout words into someone's face or speak in front of a camera or stand on a stage, I'm there. I'll do it. We do, Dave. Um, we do. That's what we want. <laughs> that's what we want you to do. Uh, and yes, although that's my chair, by the way, I haven't just broken wind. And although I live in Wolverhampton, and Wolverhampton is my home, um, and I do class myself as a Wolverhampton lad. I was born in Darlaston. A town I know you know very well. I do, I do indeed. Uh, I always refer to it as a one-horse town without a horse. <laughs> it's an interesting little hamlet, village. It's not a village, is it? It's a town. It's uh, a town now. It was tiny when I lived there. I was, so I was actually born in Bloxwich and then moved to Darleston and then moved to Walsall. <laughs> but I lived in Darleston for the most part. Yeah, so I was in Darleston for the first Where 21 years. Where about in Darleston? Rough hay. Okay. <laughs> not a million miles away from where I was so, then. So, so where were you? I was down by, now I was very little when I was there, down by Herbert's Park. So yes, down by the yeah. canal. That's rough yes, hay, isn't yes. it, area? By yes. the coal yard. That's how far back we're going. Yes. To the coal yard. My dad went to the coal yard on a Saturday. I, I always think that Darleston's a kind of, it's an interesting place because if you look at it on the map, it's kind of in the middle of a triangle of Warsaw, West Brom, Wolverhampton. Yeah. So people from Darleston, 
don't really know where they are. Exactly. In yes. that kind of triumphant or whatever you'd call it. I don't know why, but I've kind of went Wolverhampton. Whereas people I went to school with, a lot of them went Warsaw. And some people, I mean, you wouldn't talk to them, but they went West Brom. West Brom. <laughs> I'm sure it's well, a lovely place. It's very much a part of who I am. And anyone who's seen my poetry or experienced any of my writing will know that it's filled with a lot of scallywags and pubs and poverty and struggles and humour. Are we in the black country, Dave? Yes. Are we firmly in the black country? <laughs> Do you want to tell people what the black country is if they don't okay. know what the black country is? So uh, the line that I always say on stage is, yes, I'm from the black country. Uh, if you want to know the difference between the black country and Birmingham, people in the black country will say, all right, all right, I'm doing it, AI. And people in Birmingham will say, all right, all right, we'll take credit for it. <laughs> Very good. There is all sorts of things about where exactly is the black country. I think everyone that you ask, you can agree to not Birmingham. Yeah, Dudley, Wensbury, Tipton, certainly. Darleston, yeah, we had coal mines in Darleston. Wolverhampton, I would say yes, not just because I live here. I think it's got that kind of vibe to it. You know what I mean? I am, I'm of... waiting for the accent to just, to just <laughs> fall out and then, then I'll probably shadow the accent by the time we get to the end of our chat and we'll all be like, oh, bye, it, it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love, the, I love accents anyway. Just the different ways people have of saying things. I remember being in Blackpool the once. There was a sign in the calf and it just said, Balms, okay. £1.50. And I was like, what's a bar? So I went to the woman behind the counter, well, what's a bomb? She went, it's like a bread roll. And I went, you mean like a cob? She went, what's a cob? <laughs> suddenly, suddenly we're in another country. <laughs> and it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. That's what um, we need Google Translate for, isn't it? <laughs> we don't need it between French and English. We need it between Northwest Lancashire and the Black Country. Um, what exactly is a bomb? Is it a cob? <laughs> yeah, it is, basically. Yeah, I love that sort of stuff. I mean, we've recently had some neighbours moving next door and they're Romanian. Part of my family's Romanian. And we, we What's that all about? It, isn't it, it's crazy, isn't it? But... We hear them talking in the garden, and I've got no idea what they're saying because they're speaking in Romanian, but it sounds beautiful. It is. It sounds very beautiful. And, you know, I'm, I'm also someone that, yes, I've got an accent. Surprise, surprise, I have an accent. And I have been told, very seriously, I've been told that I shouldn't do poetry with my accent. Oh, no. No, no, no. That's backwards. i tell you what I'm seeing a lot of. I'm seeing a lot of poets doing poetry now in their native language hmm. and I love it because it's a, I think for me it's a real test of a poem isn't it is if you can follow the emotion of a poem but not have a scooby-doo what they're talking about but you still feel something at the end of it yeah. that's a good poem Absolutely. you know and it's a great and it's a great delivery as well. I think it works the same for accents doesn't hmm. it yeah I mean we know quite a few people who've got strong accents I won't say any of them here. No, there might be on a podcast in the future. Who knows? But yeah, I think it adds to the richness, doesn't it? Mm. I don't really have an accent because I've travelled around. But if I sit with someone long enough, I kind of pick it up a little bit. It comes back to me. 
But before we talk about poetry, mm -hmm. Dave, tell me about stand-up comedy. So, I did storytelling. Define storytelling. Sto uh, um, telling Writing. stories. Writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, e even back then, so we're going back to kind of 2005, okay. that kind of When era. you were little. Yeah. <laughs> I was about 42. <laughs> um, That's still little, though. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I was... I was Going back to about then, and I've I've always wanted to do stand up, but it's scary. I mean, it's really scary. And also, if you're living in Wolverhampton, where do you do stand up? Surely Wolverhampton is a hub of stand up well, comedy. This, this is the it interesting. Has to be, doesn't it? No offence to people yeah. who live in Wolverhampton. <laughs> this is the interesting thing. So, I knew I hadn't got the nerve to do it, and I started doing storytelling to kind of build up my confidence. And funnily enough, way back then, those stories were about like people in Darleston who used to put washing up liquid in the municipal fountains in okay. Wolverhampton and people in Darleston who found out that scrap metal had gone up in price and someone who owned an industrial estate had upset them. So they stole all the drain covers. <laughs> And, now, Donaldson and it, was a big plate. It had a lot of foundries, didn't it? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, finding yeah, yeah. new drain covers wasn't yeah. a problem. Uh, no, <laughs> no, but he obviously got tired of replacing all these drain covers. So he did this thing where they put a uh, hoop in the curbstone and padlocked the drain cover to the curbstone and then nicked the padlocks as well. Which, that uh, is enterprising. Uh, yes, yes. So I was doing all these little stories and there was humour and that associated to it, but I always wanted to do stand-up and then... About 2011, I just stumbled on something on Facebook, I think it was, uh, way back then, of some stand-up course going on in Bridge North. And I went along, and that was it. I, I started doing stand-up. And I was doing the Open 10 circuit, which is the very bottom rung of the ladder. And I met some great people, some, some people I still absolutely love and adore, and are still really, really good friends. Matty Mon Rob. Rob Kemp really kind of hit it off in, in Edinburgh in 2017. But he started at pretty much the same time as me. But to show you how tough this game is, open 10, bottom rung of the ladder. You don't get paid. And you're literally driving everywhere. So I live in Wolverhampton. We'd be going to Bridge North. Then you go to Cradley Heath and you think, okay, that's not bad. Then you go to Birmingham. Then you'd be in Bristol. And you start going to when. And you just start stretching out until eventually you're just doing hundreds, if not thousands of miles a week. Yeah. While doing a day job. The highways agency hate comedians, right? Because you're driving back down the M6, 11 o'clock at night. You've just finished and you think, I'm going to be home for like 20 to 12. I've got to be up at six, but I'm actually going to get Probably five hours kip. And then just as you get around that corner, boy, just after Junction 7, car park. Yeah. And they never tell you that they're closing the motorway down. And you end up getting in at like two in the morning. And you're just doing that constantly. No pay to four people in the back room of a pub. But that's your apprenticeship. You've just got to put the hours in. Rob, in two years... Did I think 500 gigs? Wow. And he was still considered a beginner. That's a gig every other day. Yeah. 
Okay. He was still considered a beginner. Wow. Um, and yet, what did you get? What, two minutes, was it? it was ten, just... ten minutes. Oh, ten minutes. Okay, that's good. Um, well, ten minutes if you got... If if you yeah, got through the ten yeah. minutes, <laughs> if you okay. got through the ten minutes, I'm gonna I'm um, gonna assume that you did. <laughs> not all time. It was horrendous. Like, don't get me wrong, I I loved it, but it was horrible. I learned a lot. I'm so glad I did it. And one of the things I do now is I'll I'll MC post practice and primarily so very often I'll MC the nights. I've heard you MC. Yeah. And the skills I learned in stand up enable me to MC. Not necessarily about being funny but being able to hold an audience and control the night and kind of move things around. You know what I mean? The one thing I learned in stand-up, and this goes for poetry, music or whatever, is when you're performing, there are four things. You've got your material, your delivery, the audience and the venue. And you are only in charge of two of them. Which two? (laughs) The audience and the event. But do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I'm not coming here with this kind of, I was amazing at stand-up. I wasn't. I don't do it because I wasn't very good at it. But you would go to gigs and you would just go, you know what? This is pointless. (laughs) I am performing in a pub with the TV behind me, which is showing the England game. No one's listening to me. If anything, I'm in the way. But you still did it. But you still did it. Character building. I had um, an interview with John Bishop, who's a comedian in the UK. Mm. And he said he quite often performed to empty rooms. Oh, or yeah. just had to invite his mates. And they would just rib him relentlessly just through his sets. Huh. But that's like uh, a learning ground for you. Mm. You've still got to do it though, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to the point. I wasn't doing it for money. You get something out of a live experience. Good or bad, you get something. And there was this one night, I did a gig in Leamington Spa. And it was a nightmare getting there. It was an okay night. And I had a good night. I I had what you would call a good gig. People laughed at the right place. You know, I didn't die on my arse. There were better comedians on the bill who was like, oh, you did really good tonight, Dave. Well done. And I walked off stage and I just thought, meh, I didn't get anything from it anymore. Okay. And that was it then. It was like, I'm quitting because there's no point carrying on. And when was that? So that would have been 2015, 2016. Oh, so not too far ago. And I, st- I, I actually went back to storytelling. Okay. Which was really strange because I'd always seen storytelling as a kind of, way of getting me into stand-up. Yes. And then I'd done stand-up, become disillusioned by it, and went back to the storytelling. One of the things I found when I was writing stand-up, because it's stand-up, you're always chasing the joke. And I started talking about my mental health on stage, and I started writing this new piece. And I was like, I don't want to chase the joke. I actually don't want there to be any humour in this bit. And that actually became the first play I wrote. Right, got you. Okay. Which got picked up by the Arena Theatre. Brilliant. What was it called? Bert. What was that about? So, this was actually something my wife, Fee, said to me. that Because I was, I was, I still do suffer with my mental health. But obviously, when I go up like a bottle of pop, she always used to say, that's not Dave, that's Bert. Right, got you. Right. 
and it became a useful way of not not take responsibility away from how I was behaving, but it was a useful way of being able to say there are parts of my personality that are Dave, there are parts that are Bert, and I need to get rid of the Bert bits. So yeah, Bert became this metaphor for mental health, and I wrote this this two hander play about it. And yeah, I was doing storytelling again, and then this this one night probably would have been yeah twenty sixteen maybe. I was doing a gig in Birmingham. And I just had a whole, an awful journey getting over there. You know, just one of those where it's like... I do. Oh, Birmingham's very B- difficult. Birmingham's like that anyway, isn't it? And it was at the Café Ort, which is like Mosley. And you've right. got to go all the way through, well, round Birmingham. And it was just a nightmare. And I wrote a poem before I went on stage. Just wow. in pure, like, Birmingham! <laughs> and performed it that night. Within six months, I was doing nothing but poetry. <laughs> so I'm assuming it was received well. Yeah. I just yeah. kind of fell into it. Do you think the rawness of, the, or the newness and the rawness of it helped? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'd always, I mean, come on, we, we all write poetry. I don't care what anyone says. Everyone's Everyone a poet. Has a Everyone's goal. a poet. Yeah. yeah. Everyone has a goal. And you usually keep it well, well and truly hidden, um, where it belongs. I, I was talking to Emma Persos the wonderful Emma Persis, about this very thing. And I says to her, I remember seeing Emma kind of 2005, 2006, doing poetry and just going, whoa, whoa, I'd love to do that. But I am not that. There's no way I can do that. And I think it always was a little bit, because it's either dead white people talking about flowers. Who needs that? Or someone like Emma, and you just think, oh, they're so good. I can't even be in the same room as that person. <laughs> and, and then, of course, <laughs> I'm in a poetry collective with them, which I still can't believe. So it might be worth touching that you're one third of, let me get this right, poets, prattlers, and pandemonialists. Yeah. Which one are you? <laughs> People will say that. We're actually all three. All three of us all are three all three. Of you all are three of us three. are all three of us. Yeah. So who's um, in that? So who's in that? There's you. There's me, Emma Persefs, the first Poet Laureate of Wolverhampton, and Steve Pottinger. Steve's the responsible adult. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> Steve. Steve's like the Of course, ca- he, of course the, you are, Steve. Steve's the casing around the grenade that's me and Emma. <laughs> Got you. Okay. We, we had a gig last week in Leeds, and like Steve has to go off and like park the car, and he has to leave me and Emma in a room, and... Something's gonna go wrong. <laughs> we're gonna get into trouble, or we're gonna come up with some silly idea. Yeah, he is the responsible adult. He's the one that keeps us on the straight and narrow. We, without him, we probably we would have set fire to something by now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even to this day, I actually said it today to someone that you know I did this gig last last week with Emma and Steve, and I remember sitting on stage just thinking oh, I've got the best seat in the house. <laughs> Do you know you? Do you know you've got me thinking now? Because last year I was on a mentoring program, and Emma was one of the lovely mentors. And it's only just hit me now. I don't think I've ever seen Emma perform. Isn't that strange? Yeah, you I've know seen what? a YouTube video. Hmm. I've seen her do something on YouTube. I've never seen her perform in person. It's, she's mostly been with you and Steve hosting events like slams and hmm. open mics and stuff like that. And this is actually one of the things we've been. 
I, me in particular has, has been kind of really heavy on this because we do a lot of facilitating. Yes, you do. And it's like, can we go out and do some poetry? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why it was really nice last week to go to Leeds and take our new show and, and we're doing that in Leicester in a couple of months or, or maybe we were doing it last night, depending when this goes out. I've been saying to Emma recently that it's like, you're doing too much admin. Yeah. You're not writing enough poetry. Now, I've seen uh, you perform, because you often open stuff, don't yeah. you, with a poem, mm. or close stuff with a poem, or do the interval stuff. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is, how did you make the leap to poetry, which is quite a different, similar, but quite a different experience to, say, the stand-up comedy scene? I think, like I say, when I, when I hit that point where I was... I wasn't getting anything from a stand-up gig, yes, even when I had a good gig. And I wasn't getting paid, so it's like, well, why bother? But I think the thing with poetry and, and storytelling in a way, you, you've got more freedom because you are always chasing that joke when you're doing stand-up. Here's something poets don't talk enough about, and it's creating a set. Okay. Right? Yeah. So if you've got 20 minutes... I would never just throw poems in. I see it as a journey. Okay. And and I almost think of it like peaks and troughs. And it's like, right, where am I taking the audience here? Right, we, we're going down. Well, before we go down, I'm just going to take them a little bit up because that's going to actually amplify the down. So we're going to take them down. And then we're going to bring them back up again. And then we're going to hover around a bit. Then we're going to go back down. Then we're going to go up. We're going to go in the middle. Then we'll go up and then we'll... And try and create this flow. Imagine you're on a roller coaster, folks. You'll come back to the hut. Everything will be fine. Which is going to be a bit bouncy going around. But you're safe. It's all right. Because that's how I kind of see it. You couldn't really... Or I certainly wasn't smart enough to do that in stand-up. There are some stand-ups that can do it. But they're geniuses. But when I put a poetry set together, I can really play with that, the emotions of the audience. And I, I just find it much more rewarding. The one thing I love doing in, in poetry is just holding the silence. Yes, okay. That I do recognise. But I've, I've often said that, I always say, sorry, I've just said, I often say, I've never said. But <laughs> it's one of the things where you go up. <laughs> I do think in poetry, there's as much poetry in the gaps between words, as there is in the words themselves. I've learned that. I learned that from Dylan Thomas, <laughs> who's one of my like ultimate, ultimate things. Yeah, so I completely that completely mm. resonates with me. But the other thing I'm getting, I'm picking up, is that I think you're still storytelling at heart, aren't you? You're, oh, yeah. you're weaving a story arc, a narrative, and each of your poetry performances is a scene in that overall narrative. Mm. So would you describe yourself as a poet as a poetic storyteller, rather than a traditional poet. Oh, I don't want to get into the mechanics yeah, of yeah, what yeah. is a poet, but <laughs> but there, I think there is there is an obvious distinction between poetic storytelling and poetry. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I would always say that. Again, it's not exclusive, but a lot of my stuff is a story. I did. I picked up on that, which is why I sort of gravitated towards mm. it. Plus the fact that you're from Darlow. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I gravitate. I always gravitate towards storytellers mm. because I'm like, take me away from my own problem. Whereas my my poetry is, you're talking about the arc, 
My poetry is more like build, building, uh, building speed up to the edge of the ravine and then going, right, everyone, you ready? We're going over. <laughs> <laughs> so I quite like the idea of planning the set um, a little to be able to take people on a on an upward swing mm. and, and then on then on the downward swing, but always leave them where they boarded. So it's okay, everyone, you can get off now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hopefully you've enjoyed the experience. Absolutely. You may have been scared. May have given you a few heart-stopping moments, but hopefully you've enjoyed the experience. That's all I kind of want to leave people with. And one of the things that all three of us poets, practitioners, and pandemonialists say, it's it's when you do a gig and you get someone come over, and we always have this. I don't like poetry, but I like that. You do like poetry. You've only been exposed to dead white people talking about flowers, and there's more to it than that. Like when I said earlier, that person who said I shouldn't do poetry in my accent and these people who are like, oh, I don't like poetry, but I like, you know, I like that. These are all similar causes of the same issues, really, that we're not teaching kids to be creative and we're not teaching, well, not just kids, adults as well. My wife works as a TA in a school. She'll often tell me about uh, they'll do writing with the kids and they have to do subordinate clauses. And I've got no idea what one of them is. But I'll make 20% of my money from writing. Yeah. So do I have to know what that is? And what we're doing is we're sucking the joy out of creativity. And we're making it more like painting by numbers. And I was, funnily enough, talking to a head teacher a couple of weeks back about AI. Because there's all this stuff about AI at the minute. Don't will do it. AI, Don't do it. Will AI replace artists? No. No. Because it can't. No, exactly. It can't. It can't grasp the beauty. That's what people keep getting wrong. So they'll talk about the Turing test, for instance. What they forget is the Turing test isn't about the computer fooling you into thinking it's human. It's actually about the computer talking to you about art. So the Turing test actually brings up, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And being outside to the computer, well, why, why would, shall I compare thee to a winter's day, not work? And the computer understands that. And it can't. Hmm. It can't grasp. The, and we have, I don't care what level of education you've got, even if you can't vocalise what the difference is between shall I compare thee to a summer's day or shall I compare thee to a winter's day, you know one's better and one's worse. It's just this kind of feeling in your gut. And that's what machines can't do. But also, they're trying to make everyone the same. No, we should be encouraging accents. We sh because it's the individual experiences that we have where the beauty comes from. When I teach writing, I always say to people, and this is a lesson from stand-up, which is be precise and dig into. So take one little bit of what you're talking about and drill into it, but about your own experiences. Yeah. And even though it's your experience, it's very, very specific to you, because it's so specific, it will be universal. I agree. I think that's the, that's the AI debate, isn't it? It's, as poets, as, even as storytellers or just as human beings, we, we draw stories from our own life experiences. Mm. And then we use the outside world in order to convey them. But the AI can only draw its storytelling from other experiences that it has had and so it doesn't have that foothold to be able to say where does this all come together and i think that's where 
that's where we as innately as humans can can hear something and go, that's an AI produced piece of work. Because I saw something in the news today saying the teachers are now clocking on to students using tools like ChatGPT um, and other tools like that. But teachers are clocking on and saying there are tools now that can tell you that that was produced or, or there's a large likelihood that was mm. produced using our AI engine because there's nothing about the student in it. It's exactly. Be because it's training data, it's just this homogenous lump of everything. There's no personality to it. And it's we want personality. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But the sad thing is, is we're teaching our kids, and we're teaching adults as well, to just be like everybody else. And it's, no, no, you've got to be your own person. And it's got to be based on your experiences. Even if you're writing about something completely out there, you know, even if you... I, I wrote uh, a poem. So there was a... a oh, I think it was no, uh, January 1917. There was um, some Zeppelins came over. And of course, First World War, I mean, there's no streetlights anyway, but there's not a lot of light on the ground. And apparently what happened is these Zeppelins went over. They thought they were aiming for Liverpool. And they thought Shrewsbury was the North Sea. And they'd overshot. Okay. So they turned around and they saw some lights on the ground and it was Wensbury and Tipton and Warsaw and they dropped their bombs on oh, wow. Wensbury, Tipton and Warsaw. Uh, in fact, if you go to the big cemetery in Wensbury, just before you get to the Motorway Island, there's a memorial there to it, yeah. which is how I found out about it. And in Warsaw, on the one nightclub in Bradford Place, there's a bit of the original wall with a hole in it where the bomb oh, brought wow. the wall away. Now, I don't know what it's like living in World War One, but I still wrote a poem about it. But I wrote a poem about the fact that this family got split up. They'd gone to the movie theatre in Wensbury. The bomb had hit a gas main, so they had to evacuate. And they got split up, and they lost the dad. They couldn't find him. And they go back home, and they think he's been killed. And then they see him, and he's limping. And it turns out he took his boot off and slung it at the Zeppelin. Okay. Obviously, there's no way he's going to eat it. But he just felt that he needed to do that. Are you able to tell us the Zeppelin poem? When we do our award-winning show. The Zeppelin poem. Is <laughs> uh, yeah. No, 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 it's oh. not in there. But we, because it's like we, we've built it for fringe. So it's like less than an hour. It's like 50 minutes. Gotcha. If we're going somewhere like Leeds or we're doing a, a, a theatre, we'll have an interval and then we'll do this thing called Poetry Past the Parcel. Right. And it's great. We ask the audience for a theme and then one of us will go, I've got a poem on that. And we'll do a poem. And then someone will go, right, okay, well, in that poem, you mentioned this. Well, I've got a poem about that. Now, you'd think that me, Emma and Steve would, would be in a position where, although we might have to finagle the first poem, if Perseus does this poem, I know I can follow yes. on with it. Oh, no, 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 no. We, we're <laughs> not that smart. We will genuinely just sit there going, oh, I don't know, and then we'll, we'll just force a way through. We'll make a link. Uh, and it's so much fun. So one of the reasons I say all this is I have all my poems on an iPad. Because if someone, you know, Emma does a poem, he's like, so, someone came up at Leeds 
because there was a few musicians in the room, a few people who knew Steve, and this is uh, a theme. And the one of them said, Junction 10, something about Junction 10 in Warsaw. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, I've got a poem about that. <laughs> <laughs> 31st of January, 1916. Old country bumpkin Dietrich, they know his son from his Verdun, mistook the walls of Shrewsbury for the North Sea, scattered his bombs like he was sowing seeds on his farm. It wore no northern port town that was his victim. It was the folks of Warsaw, Wensbury and Tipton. They found old Mr Hill limping. After watching a seed blow apart a building, he did what he could. Ripped off his boot from his foot and chucked it at the Zeppelin. That's the story they tell in the pub. Old Hilly trying to use a hobnail to crash a Zeppelin to the ground. Better that than the stories of all the oaks and saplings that were cut down. Beautiful. So I wrote about that because we know what that feels like, don't we? We do. Throwing a boot at a Zeppelin. Yes, we do. That's what I mean. I have thrown a boot at a Zeppelin. It's a metaphor. It's poetry. I think we've um, all thrown boots at Zeppelins. Yeah, we've Anti yeah. eels, I have to tell you. <laughs> I could get precise with that story. Yeah. Because it was about throwing a boot at a Zeppelin. I'm doing the fingers. I know there's like all sorts of stuff at the minute about um, writing from other viewpoints and whether you can do that and be respectful. Yes. And I'm really torn about this. I'm really torn I'm, about this. I'm glad. I get I get it. I get when it's done clumsily. It's the worst thing ever. But at the same time, to use a, a an extremity, I've recently read a book uh, called Children of Earth by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Okay. I think I think I've probably I've more than likely got that wrong. But it's a science fiction novel, and the vast majority of the book is told from the point of view of the sentient spiders. Okay, fine. And it's brilliant. Yes. I'm, I'm not saying he's going to offend spiders, but he's really thought about how to handle that. Talking about spiders, but he's being respectful. When you're going from someone else's point of view, and another stand-up thing, where are you punching? Yeah. Punching up or are you punching down? Even though you might not necessarily be punching, where are you punching? Are you being respectful? Have you done your research? Because also, when we see the world through other people's eyes, we have empathy for them. It's interesting. You've got two points there that I'm going to pick up on. The first one, writing from another person's perspective. I have a series of poems called Whitaker's Bay, which is really ostensibly about human murder. But it's being told completely from the point of view of the animals that live in the lake in which the body was dumped. And of course, they don't know what a murder is or what a body is or who each other are necessarily, but they're trying to make sense of police tape, crime tape, torches, all these things that are suddenly appearing. They're trying to, so, and for me, that was trying to explore, can I tell story for poetry from someone's perspective other than my own? And the, the other point that I have is, and it's come up quite a few times for me, is how do you feel about other people reading your poetry? Because I'll tell you what I think after you tell me what you think. Right. So this is a perfect example, right? It's not poetry. It was uh, a play script I, I did. Ah, okay. So I, I, but that is fundamentally designed I, to be written, but read yes, by another yes. person. Okay. So I applied for something 
and part of the application process was that my work would be read out by some actors. And they picked the most middle-class drama students imaginable. Now, this is the point. If they'd have got these middle-class drama students who went, right, this is from a working-class point of view here. I'm going to struggle with this. I'm going to research it. I'm going to talk to the writer. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Or, the, or even if they'd gone, you know what, I don't think I can actually do this justice. But instead, you had an incredibly posh lad trying to do black country. Gotcha. And then that is supposed to show off my work to this group of people. And it's like, no, you've just, you've literally just wrapped it up in a turd because you haven't, you, you haven't shown it any respect. And, and that's the point. I, I would have no problems with Benedict Cumberbatch doing that. Yeah. If he tra- treated it with respect. You mean they, if he internalised the sort of context and conflict of it? Yeah, yes. And, yeah. and yes, yes. Yeah, so it means um, something to him coming out. He's yes. not just reading some words that you've written. And, and, you know, if you're going to do the accent, fine. You know, but be respectful yes. about that as well. I think that's where, when people talk about either writing something from another point of view, I think that's where the problem is, is when it's not being treated with respect. Yes. I, I, one, of, one of the short plays I wrote, I wanted to write something about sex, love and intimacy because they're all different. And I, I, I'm still amazed that people think they're the same. Yeah, you're looking at me with a funny face for, for people listening to this on audio. Um, <laughs> like, like I'd have any experience of that. <laughs> well, maybe one of them. But, but the main character was a prostitute. Oh, right. Right? Now, I was really wary of this. Yes. Because I, I'm, I'm fully aware that a lot of actors, um, female uh, actors will go, that's all, the, that's all I get offered is prostitutes and sex workers. I didn't just want to do another broad brush strokes. I've never been to a prostitute, a sex worker, so I don't know anything about that world. That's official, everyone. That's, that is That's official. on the record. Um, but I treated it with respect. Yes. And I, I did my research. Okay. Found a wonderful AMA on Reddit. Yeah. A sex worker doing an AMA. So like... So this is what it was like, and and, and it was really useful. And, and again, I'm not coming at this from a female perspective. So it was like, I really want to make sure that I'm treating that with respect as well. And what was great was Jess, who played the role, she sent me a message after and says, thank you for writing that role. The name of the sex worker is Kitty. And she just put, thank you for giving Kitty some claws. Oh. And it was like, oh, yeah. and again, I was writing from a completely different viewpoint, but I was treating it with respect. And I put the legwork in, I did the research. And that that's my that's my feelings on it anyway, is that when we get upset at it, and I understand why people get upset at it, it's because the work hasn't been done. But also, let's not forget, I shouldn't be getting gigs writing plays about female sex workers when there are female sex workers out there who can write their own fucking plays. Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah. You so know, because yeah, there's that as well. Yes. And that's that's a big issue, taking the work off someone. But but wasn't it the case that in that instance you actually had something to say about it? Uh, yes. Which, yeah. Certainly that. Yeah. So if if you've got something to if you've got a personal reflection or personal inflection to, to say about it, then I think it is kind of okay, mm. isn't it? As long as you do the work and then you are re- re- yeah, respectful. And, and to be fair, it wasn't about sex work. Absolutely. It was, yes. Sex work was... That'll certainly fill the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was put on by a company called Gritty Theatre who aren't, oh, who aren't okay. around anymore. Right. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> um, but they were wonderful. That's how they put <clears throat> my play on with uh, another one by Michael Southern, um, which was also kind of a bit sexy. And they actually called it A Night of Sex and Gritty Theatre. Which I thought was a great title, and and yeah, that went really well. But it wasn't about sex. It was about it was it wasn't about sex work. It was about sex, love, and intimacy. And I was using the world of sex work to explore that. So I think I'm probably going to contradict myself here because I think if someone came to me and says write about a sex worker, I'd probably say no. Okay. This is easy, easy. It is not, not easy. It isn't. Easy. How would you feel if someone came to you and said? Dave, I really like your poem. Can I read that at my event? I wouldn't be... I or have you ever be... heard a poem of somebody else's and gone, can I borrow that poem? Oh! And read that poem, because I loved it. You know, that's never... Oh, there you go. We've opened That's never the door. dawned on me. Hasn't it? No. And that's not me going, I would not want to read anybody else's. That's like, I've, the idea of that has never crossed my mind. So it's come up. A few, it's come up several times in my circles where there's been suggestions of, should we try a night where we read each other's poetry? I've always been like, no, thank you very much. But my mind has been changed a little bit on it. Well, actually, quite a lot really, because a couple of people have read my poem back to me. Emma was one of them who kind of opened my door to that, and I was like, your interpretation of my poem is completely different to my interpretation of that poem. So I'm thinking, Absolutely. if somebody's, what I wouldn't want to do is just rock up, somebody hand me their poem, and then I just stand there and try and perform it like I have any clue what it's about. But if somebody could give it to me in beforehand, and I could really like understand it from my perspective, like where am I coming from at it, that's where my mind's been changed. And it's like, suddenly your brain gets bigger. So actually saying that, we, we have had things with pasta, so run a night of the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton called Pasta, which people could just come along and, and read at. Pasta stands for? Poets and Storytellers Assemble. Absolutely. I did not come out with that title. <laughs> um, I have been there and there was no pasta. <laughs> there was no pasta. There was no food on offer whatsoever. <laughs> and we've had readers. So you will get some people who either they don't want to perform or they can't make it. But they've got, and they can't create a video or an audio piece. You do these wonderful videos. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. No. It's just like, did James Cameron direct um, <laughs> If only. But again, we don't just go to a random person and say, read that. Yes. And give them, you know what I mean? It's, we deal with it with respect and the person's given the piece and they're given time to process it. But absolutely, I think when, I mean, I have this with my plays. You'll get people reading it and it'll just be like, oh, you've just taken that somewhere else. And I'm weirdly, I'm not precious. Okay. So I love nothing more than someone to take one of my play scripts and kind of go, oh, can we, can we say, can I say this instead? Because A, 
that's actually a really good line. Yeah. B, everyone will think I'll write it. <laughs> Plus, I suppose it shows they're engaged. They've engaged Absolutely. in the piece of yeah. work, you know. And and also, <laughs> I'm as a writer again. It's this kind of respect thing. As a writer, I'm dealing with every character in this play, but an actor is just dealing with the one character. So they've got more invested in that than I have. Yes. In a, in a weird way, and they probably know that character better than I do. It's, I suppose it's like a T, isn't it? It's like you've got the breadth of it and they've got the depth of it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Now, award-winning Dave? Where, where does award-winning Dave Pitt come from? You've got to put that, haven't you? I hate putting oh, well, that. Well, I, w- I wish I could put it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, never I, get anywhere in, I never get anywhere in slams or anything else <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh, slams don't mean anything. Slams don't mean anything. But if you take nothing else away from this conversation... <clears throat> I, do them for, I do them for fun. Yes. I will tell you, I've actually got performance uh, offers to do performances, even though I've got nowhere in a slam. Yeah. People have come up and gone, wow, I like what you did there. Can you come to our event? And I've gone, yeah, will you pay me? No, <laughs> will you yeah, pay me yeah. to do it? Um, Slams are a great way to just get your work out there. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of torn about how I feel about them. I don't think I'm born to do them, but I, I quite like them, number one, to hear what other people are doing, and number two, because there's always an opportunity to just put your work in front of people you wouldn't normally see. Yeah. Sorry, carry on with your point. And, and you always get an audience that don't normally come to poetry gigs. They'll come to a slam. Yeah, that's right. And there's a twist to back to the stand-up, I think, because the thing I was going to ask you about was the difference in audience between stand-up and um, poetry. Is, is this true? And it's me making assumptions. I always say, if you go to a poetry event, everyone's on your side right from the beginning, except for a slam, possibly. You'll you'll come out of doing your performance and you'll go up to people and you'll go, Dave, that was awesome, even though you might think that was awful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You, everyone's there to be supportive and everyone's... But I'm assuming that doesn't happen at stand-ups. So, yes, that, that's a very, very good... And there's pros and cons to that. You know what I said earlier? There's... Your material, your delivery. Yes. The, there's the venue and um, uh, the audience. To be a good performer, I think you've got to work out if something goes well, why did it go well? Because it's very easy to go, that was me. <laughs> and he's like, well, actually, that we're all drunk. <laughs> yeah. They, they, an amazing act had just gone off, an amazing act come on after me. And, and it was just the vibes of the night and everything sort of went well. And, and six people in the back room of a boozer, it probably won't go as well. And it might not all be me. It could be audience yes. venue. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah. But also, you know, if you're performing in front of the telly that's playing the England game, that's definitely a problem with the venue. Audiences. I, I often say the thing with poetry, you'll always get the golfing clap. Which is great. If you're lacking in confidence, yes, poetry audiences tend to be on your side. The problem is, if your poem shit, there's no one telling you it's shit. I'm glad you've put it more eloquently than than, than I did. (laughs) But do you know the twist there is, and and I found this, is you... Because I did a load, I started doing a load of online zooms, hundreds, right? Just to, and one time, me and a couple of friends were doing like four a day because you fall into a pattern, yeah, yeah. and they're like, "Come along, come along," and then you do a bit. 
And then everyone's telling you how awesome and amazing you are, right? And then you go to the in-person event, you, you, you face the, the mic for the first time that you've probably never done because everyone's told you you're awesome. Everyone, you come down and everyone says, wow, that was awesome. Well done, you. Come back. They give you the golfing clap. Well done, well done. And then you get to a point where you go, right, I'm going to put my collection together and send it off. And everyone comes back and says, that was awful. Whoa, <laughs> I'm not interested in your work whatsoever. And then there's the harsh reality uh, of the world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that off my no, chest. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely very valid. It's, it's, it's one of the worst things about the poetry community. It is that thing that you need someone who will tell you your poems and shit. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, and we'll push you to be better. Stand-up's the other way. So sometimes you can be the best comedian on that bill. You can have a great gig. You can have great jokes. But if the audience don't like you, <laughs> they will let you know. Yeah. And female or female-identifying comedians, <sighs> like the misogyny mm. and the prejudice in that world, I remember a comedian called Izzy Suti, great comedian, but she does a lot of musical stuff as well, so she'll come out with like a, a uke or a guitar. She doesn't even do the comedy clubs anymore. She says, you could see the audience, she would walk out with the guitar, and you saw the audience go, what an absolute bunch of wankers. Just not giving people a chance, because they've got this idea. And, and you know, this also comes back to sending your work off mm. I, I i've got this real thing about right we are performers and writers mm. we're also gatekeepers because we run gigs and and whatever so who do you give a gig to and if you say no why do you say no do you say no because you think they're shit in which case why do you think they're shit and actually are you wrong now that's not to say Every poet is brilliant and you you just go... I'm saying you, I don't mean you. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, don't I'm, worry. I'm being, I'm being general. <laughs> Dave's abstracting uh, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm making notes anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, there's also a point there, though, isn't there, about... It's not just whether you think someone's got the quality of goods to deliver it, but is there also an aspect of it that a person that you decide to, to put on the stage to present their work needs to fill a room? Is that a part? Like, because you often see people, the same people headlining all over the place mm. rather than new people being given a chance. Bit of a bee in my bonnet. But you always see the same people doing the same stuff at the same things, headlining, 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 headlining. And it wonder, is it because they're a guaranteed fill of the room or is it just purely because their work is much better than, than say, another person? And I always argue that no one poet's work is better than another poet. It's down to the one individual who's sitting in the audience, whether they connect to it or not. Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in the gatekeeper thought process that you've got going on there. So, what do you? Where is it? So, like, like what I said earlier about when I had that play, and the gatekeepers put it into the mouths of someone who didn't treat it with respect, who wasn't the right person for the role, and it fell flat on its ass. Of course, it fell flat on its ass. But then, them as gatekeepers couldn't see that they were responsible for that. Yes. So, have I now got to be in my bonnet? Because have I got a chip on my shoulder? Is a bit more of an accurate. Because I got turned down for someone else. Well, actually, was that someone else that turned me down for better anyway? 
Yeah. I, I don't know. Depends what you mean by yeah. better. Yeah. What, what I have found, I'm 50 now. Oh. Too old. One day, Dave, one day, I'll, I'll understand what that means, she says, having passed <laughs> 50 several years ago. <laughs> you know, it's horrible, isn't it? Tell me um, about it. I applied for something, poetry-wise, and I applied with a video. And there was part of me in the back of my mind that was like, they already know who they're going for, and it ain't me. But for shits and giggles, I'll apply, just on the off chance. And I was also, you know, a few other people was going, apply, apply, apply. And part of the reason I applied, and this is really horrible, was because I knew it was a video, and I was sending them the link on YouTube, I could see if they saw it. I like it. Because it was an unlisted video. It's another video. view, Dave. It's another it, view. Well, it was an unlisted video. <laughs> so it had one view when I checked that the link worked. Okay? And I failed. I never watched the video. Now, it would be easy for me to say, yep, yeah, they knew who they wanted. Right? The reality is, I probably fell into an admin black hole. Yeah. Right? But, if they knew me, would I have fallen into an admin black hole or would they have been looking out for me? Looking out for my application? And maybe a little, we had your application, Dave. Are you? I sent it two months ago. I'll send it again. Check it. Can you see it now? Yeah, okay, you got it. How many admin black holes are there that we fall into? Loads. There's loads. And what are the gatekeepers doing about that? I know. But then you have got the issues of there are going to be gatekeepers, be that in publishing, be that just providing gigs, be that in the audience. You're going to have your audience members who are gatekeepers who are like, you shouldn't be doing this because of your accent. Mm. You know what I mean? It's gatekeeping. And you are going to get people who are like, well, we're not having that person because they swear too much. And we're not having that person because they don't swear enough. And we're not having that person because they're not funny enough. And whatever, right? And, and I get it because we all do it. It's it's really difficult. I, I know of I know of one place in comedy, which is the Holly Bush in Cradley East. Doesn't matter how much you die on your ass, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do. If you go to Dave and say, Can I have a gig? he'll give you a gig. That's brave. That's life though, isn't it? That's yeah. so like I would never He's giving you the chance to he's fail. He's giving you the chance and some people will give you the chance to fail. I would say to people still submit word that Poetry in particular seems to be having a resurgence, a massive resurgence. As, as the world's a bit shit. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Don't yeah. swear very often yeah. on the part. The world's a bit shit, and everybody is trying to find a way to be able to express how they feel about that. Poetry is doing wonders for that, and it's having a massive resurgence, which means that loads of people are sending stuff to a very small number of publishers in an industry that's dying, really. The, the printed medium is, is, is dying. It may, hopefully, it will have a resurgence one day, but it's disappearing. And so it all depends on that split second moment of what that gatekeeper is doing. They might be having a cup of coffee. They might have just gone to the toilet. They might be looking for this. They might be looking for that. I would never, don't let it put, put anybody off just sending your work in because if you don't send it in, you have a 100% chance of failing. Yeah. But if you send it in, then it gets ever so, ever so marginally better. But don't get but don't get your hopes up. That's what I would say. You, you see, I'm in this really. I, you're absolutely right, and I would say to anyone, yes, listen to Jay on that. 
don't listen. In fact, funnily enough, today I had a message. Um, I won't read it. I won't say who from, and I won't say what, but I'll give you the gist of it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you it was when we finished recording. It was just... Uh, so some submissions are open for a window for collections. I put one together. Would you mind casting an eye over it? And I went, you can, but I'm probably the worst person to ask because fuck them. Fuck their f- f- submissions. Fuck them up the wrong end. And I, like... <laughs> and... I know you're right. <laughs> and I'm a cynical old man who's got a chip on his shoulder it's absolutely the truth um i right i i I stopped submitting although that's not that's not entirely true i i can pay for my war with rejection letters and and there was genuinely a point where last year i was saying to myself am i scared of rejection Am I not submitting things because I'm scared of being rejected? And I think that was also part of the reason why I applied with that video. Right? And it it took me two days to do my submission. And if they'd have turned me down, I wouldn't have been bothered. But because they didn't see it, like I will never, I will not go near them with a barge pole. I've spent all that time on that submission. And they didn't even look at it. And then I applied for something else last year. And it was through 1448, which is a theatre festival I do. If you've got any interest in theatre, anyone listening, look up 1448. It's the best weekend of your life. It's brilliant. They put out a call and they said, we, we want to do a Christmas show. We want to do a reworking of a Christmas carol. Any writers want to apply? Um, and it's like, it's, it was a good paid gig. And I applied. My application involved me reading a Christmas carol again. So what's that? 15, 16 hours, maybe? Mm. Writing a pitch, which took me probably four days. And I got turned down. And I got no problems with it at all. They turned me down. uh, And they went, right, brilliant application, Dave. Um, Really funny. It was totally unique. We didn't have anything like this. But you didn't go into this bit well enough. And I was like... You're absolutely right. But because you said that, I know you've read it. Absolutely. So I'm fine with that. And that was when I realised, actually, I'm not scared of rejection. I'm scared of not being heard. So on that point, tell me about the award-winning Dave Fish. <laughs> the award-winning Dave Fish. Because you managed to... I'm not going to say you dodged the question. <clears throat> I did. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I won an award at 1448. Uh, I won what they called the Wolf Pack Award, which is like Spirit of the Festival Award. 1448, you basically 70 people come together and create 14 plays in 48 hours. Okay. So you meet up on Thursday night, you pick a theme, and then the seven writers have to go away and write a 10-minute play on that theme. And that has to be ready at 8 o'clock the next morning. Okay. Exciting. (laughs) Then the directors draw a play at random then they draw their performers at random then they go to the design team and they get the design team to make sets and costumes and they go to the band to get songs ready and they go to the tech team to put all the lights and stuff up 
And at eight o'clock that night, the seven plays are performed. No oh. scripts on stage. Performers have got to learn their lines. Props have got to be ready. And then we pick another theme and we do it all again the next night. So you end up with 14 plays in 48 hours. You don't sleep. You do nothing but laugh and be in a bag of stress for two days. But it's, it is the best experience. And yet I kind of won an award through then, which was wonderful. I also, Bert, and oh, you've got to love him for doing this. It went to the All England Theatre Festival and basically wiped the floor. <laughs> it was like, best actor, best script, best direction. You know what I mean? Just won everything. And it was all you, was it? Or... No, 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 oh, no, okay. no. So I, I got like best writer. And, okay. You know okay. what I mean? All that stuff. Yeah. And it went on to the kind of like another festival. And the people who were doing the play, who were performing the play, were like, nah. Which I just, I was like, oh, that's the best thing you could have ever said. I love you forever for saying that. Um, because just going, nah. He's a reward, don't bugger off. So, yeah, it won that. And then also, you know, working with Emma and Steve, I mean, we, the show we did in Leeds last week, that won Best Spoken Word show at Morecambe Fringe last year. And okay. Yeah, well so. Done. Well done. Yeah. Do you have we, to share that or do they give you yeah, free? Yeah, no, we have to, we have, we have to, we don't get anything free. You don't get anything, uh, you just get a one third share of, no, of, of, no, of, of some sentence. Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we've got little things like that. Okay. Um, um, uh, you have to put it in there, you have to put it on your website. And, and, well, and you I know, Dave, it. He, does, he does grab the eye, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I just... I didn't for a minute go, Dave, award winning. No. <laughs> I really ate it. And... I think I could put a water in. I got Thunderball last week. Can I, does that count? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Prize, prize winning because five pounds on Thunderball. Probably harder than writing an award winning play. To be fair, the odds are far more stacked <laughs> against you. It just feels uncomfortable. Do you have this? Right, you write something, and maybe poetry wise, you perform it or, or a play, or write the play, and then it's gone. Hmm. And a poem, I'll write the poem. And I'll perform it. And I'll see the performances as being part of the writing process as well. Yes, I do that. Yeah, so they'll change, won't they? And they'll, yes. they'll morph and evolve. And, and More is in draft. Yeah, yes, yeah. But then there becomes a point where it's like, I'm done with that now. And it's gone. Yes. When we come out of lockdown, I had to go to some events at the Arena Theatre. And, you know, it was one of these, everyone sit in a circle. And say what you've been doing for the last two years. And I remember thinking, oh, I haven't done anything. All I've done is watch like really bad Steven Seagal films. And, and they went, you have? And they just said a couple of things. And then it was like, and I'd totally forgotten. Because it was like, oh, it's gone now. <laughs> you do like this storytelling thing on Twitch. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Because <laughs> it's gone. It's, it's in the past. That does lead me to an interesting question I was going to go to you. Like, Whenever I perform, that's my first draft. I have this thing where I don't want to overwork a poem because then it doesn't sound authentic. After a while, it starts to sound like a poem. And I think if it starts to sound like a poem, I've gone too far. Like, I've got my, my first book out that I've given you a copy of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but okay. to me, that's like what you said. That's like, I'm done with those poems. And, and it's always odd that a book launch is like, 
a lot of people see it as the celebration of, oh, here's a load of poems. Can you read some? And you're going, no, no, this is the end of me with the, <laughs> this is the end of my run with these poems. I want to move on to something yes. else. But people always want to, can you do the one about? Can you do the one about? Does any of that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. And there are still poems that like, you know, older poems that I'll do. Yeah. I don't hate them. Yeah, <laughs> but, I'll, you know, I'll, yeah, yeah, we've the, just <clears> seen them a lot. We, we have. But then at the same time, you know, if you go and see ACDC and they don't play Highway to Hell, you kick off. <laughs> and it's... I won't be going to see ACDC. <laughs> I once nearly went to a Bross concert. <laughs> I, I would definitely go to a Bross concert. <laughs> You've got to, haven't you? It's just one of those things. But, but are yeah, you a fast writer? Like, like, uh, yeah, back, back to the back Being, to the being, being a fourteen forty eight thing, I got the sense that you must be able to write quite quickly. So, yes, I can write very quickly. I have to get some work from Gazebo Theatre. Pam will kind of say, I've had this idea of putting in a bid for some money. And then they delayed giving me the money. So I've got the money now, but I've got it six months after I thought I was going to get it. Or they promised it. So now I need, and this genuinely happened last year, I need a 60-minute play by Thursday. Yeah. And I bet you said, yes, I can do that. Yeah. And yes, the 1448 thing, it teaches you to write quick. Have you ever done poetry on demand? I haven't done poetry on demand, but I write an awful lot of poetry. Like on my YouTube channel, I mean, I sometimes, I don't, I don't know if you have this as well, you get phases where you just can't stop writing poetry. Like oh. there are days when you don't do anything, but a lot of the time just endlessly writing mm. and wonder what I would do if I wasn't doing it. So, so I tend to think I do write quickly. But I was just wondering where you were on that on that scale. One of the ones that I get, this is probably my highway to hell. People will often ask me to do Tattooed Bride, which okay. is a poem I wrote for my wife. And yeah, I love you know, I still like the poem and I'm, and I am still playing with it as well, in a way. And that that was a weird one. And I and I think I've got a few like this. The idea of writing a poem about my wife and calling it Tattooed Bride was probably one of the first poetry ideas I had but it probably took two years before it appeared. But the writing process itself of that poem was probably only a few hours. Yeah. But, but I sat on it. Yes, it's, so it's percolating. Yeah. That's what I have. Suddenly, it's in the brain, and if you don't write it, it's gone. But it could take quite a while to sort of sift through, yes. especially my brain these days, to, to sift its way down into a place where I could see the words. Yes, you have to let it ferment. So, like... The Tattoo Pride poem, the thing that made me go and write it, there's a line at the end which is, um, she's my lighthouse who's been beat in time with my heart. And it was that image. Oh, what a beautiful It was image. just finding that. And it was like, I've got it now. Yes. I think that's the percolation, isn't it? Once the, the heart of the poem is, is landed, the, the poem tends to come quite quickly yeah. then, doesn't it? But then poetry on demand, you know, you have to write You've got 20 minutes. <laughs> I've done quite a lot of workshops where they, they just give you a prompt and they go, right, five minutes, and then everybody read what you've got. And I read, I, and I quite often I can come out with like a five-verse poem, uh, and it's just like people are going, did you just write that? And I, or was it one you already had? Uh, but I like it. Can you tell us your poem? Tattoo Bride. Tattoo Bride. I was thinking Lighthouse Bride then. But can you tell <laughs> us Tattoo Bride? I want to take you aside and tell you the reason that I'm alive. It's all because of my tattooed bride. Not that it matters, but we met at this group for wannabe actors and on her skin were these black lines. 
those unique designs combined with her mind make her divine. In those early days, I think of any excuse to walk her back to her place. No, not to get to first base. I just wanted to hear her speak. Her words were like rainfall washing away the dirt of all the years of mistrust, hatred and her... Listen, listen to me babbling. I know it must be maddening, but bear with me. It's one day I was walking around and, and the rain was soaking us to the bone, but it didn't matter. We just continued our chatter, putting the world to rights and my life filled with shadows. It got these highlights. And as the rain poured, my confidence soared and I told her she was adored. This painter, this sculptor, this coding convention corrupter and as the rain dripped off the end of her nose, I knew that I loved her. It's, it's those tattoos. Those unique designs combined with her mind break the confines of my views. I see the world through better eyes and it's all because of my tattooed brain. She is a lighthouse who's been beat in time with my heart. She is an effortless bacall to my wannabe Bogart. She sports odd socks and wears my t-shirt as a vest and it was obvious we were right for each other when we high-fived after sex. <laughs> what a beautiful poem to write to write someone. I've never had anyone write a poem like that about me, Dave. <laughs> My wife isn't interested in poetry. Mm. She's one of those normal people. <laughs> and she she came to the first PPP show, which I also think was award-winning. I think we won an award. Oh, stop it now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she came to the first PPP show and, and tattooed brides in there. And she, she came to it when we performed it at the Arena Theatre. So, of course, it's a proper theatre. And for those that don't know, proper theatre, you're in light and you cannot see the audience. It's just blackout. So I knew she was there and I knew roughly where she was sitting. And I performed it for the first time with her in the room. And it was like, I wish I'd filmed that one. Wow. That was, that was something special. Did she run up to the stage? Like, <laughs> No, she didn't. Was it a Patrick Swayze moment? <laughs> But it's, you know what I mean? It just lifts yeah, your performance to another level. In the same show, Purse House, this wonderful poem about Donald Trump. And I mean, it's, it's fantastic. But it's about how horrible Donald Trump is, obviously, and some of the nasty things that he's done to people. And she paints that to what's happened to her in the past. We over-rehearsed that show. And I must have seen her do that poem like 50 times. And then the night of the gig, it just went somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and she actually said there was, a, there was a woman in the front row and she says something similar must have happened to her. Because I, I could just tell by the way she was reacting. You can and, certainly tell when someone connects with your yeah, work, can't you? Yeah, and he just took it somewhere else. It's so rare, but when it happens, crikey, makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Have you got an up-to-date poem of yours that you can share with us? Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask you to do Spider Brendan <laughs> from TikTok. Um, I will put the link in. I will put the yeah, link put in the for link people in. if they want to so, hear it. Um, I, I, yes, I have. I've just got to find it. And while you do that, One you've of, been busy doing chat books, haven't you? 
Um, yes, yeah, so I released. I released a twenty twenty two chat book. Was it twenty two? You one step at a time. Oh, good game. Okay. Alive. Yes. So here's what happened. I released a collection in twenty eighteen, something like that. Sold out. Print run of twenty five. It's the way forward. Same day. <laughs> same day. First collection. <laughs> And I was in the process of putting a second collection together. And I'm concerned that with societies going into a way where art will become two-tiered and everything will be beyond paywalls. I was thinking in particular, and I, and I don't blame art galleries for this, but to make that quite clear right now, art galleries have started to charge for certain exhibitions, but they have to because all the funding's been cut by the government. And that terrifies me because we're going to get to a point where there are some people who are going to be cut off from accessing art other than funnily enough graffiti art which they're trying to paint over it says it all doesn't it so with the rise of patreon and things like that and ko-fi and all that stuff i said right what i'm going to do is i'm going to try and release my stuff for nothing you just have it and if you like it buy me a coffee or go on Patreon. And I just had pretty much zero. Oh, that's a shame. I do the same on YouTube. So yeah, yes. put all my stuff on YouTube and then say, if you like it, buy me a coffee. Yeah. Every now and then, some kind soul does, but I can't live on one coffee every two years. No, no, exactly. <laughs> um, and I get it. The, the platforms, Smashwords, aren't going to promote your thing that's free. They're going to promote the erotic fiction that... Sells for four ninety nine, and he's only thirty pages long. Oh, that's um, worth making a mental note. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know what I mean. So, so I, I get it, and maybe there's a point that if you're giving it to people for free, they they don't think it's worth anything. So, I've had another think, and I think what I'm going to do is I am going to do another collection, and that's actually on my list tomorrow. I've I've assembled it, and I've put things together, and I've got some ideas, and I'm. Now we've got the lead show out the way. That's tomorrow's job is to actually go back and look at that and I've given it a couple of weeks okay. and see how it feels. So you never know. Watch this space. One of the people who used to be on the poetry scene uh, around here was a woman called Eileen Ward-Birch. I loved her poetry. It was always like listening to me now. She kind of came from like Wensbury, Darleston and it, it was literally like listening to my nan. It was wonderful. She recently passed away and... I wrote this poem for her. It, this was quite funny because I put this on the internet and it's called Eileen's Cuppa. Right? Obviously, there's references to the cups of tea she would make, but it's a poem. So it's a metaphor. So the tea is actually her poems, you see? Because gotcha. it's, it's art, isn't it? And someone responded uh, and says, Mom, Mom, you used to make cups of tea like that. And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't even want you reading my poetry. <laughs> it's not about tea. <laughs> so, yeah, Eileen's cuppa. I'll tell you what, wench, your cuppas were that strong, you could stand the teaspoon up in them. See, it's not about tea, is it? <laughs> I'll tell you what, wench, your cuppas were that strong, you could stand the teaspoon up in them. They took me back to the bruise made by me nan, or me auntie, or me dad. Tea that would tingle the back of my mouth, wake me up, and leave me wanting more. And some people thought you should have took the bag out sooner, stirred it a little less, 
but I can't taste their tea. It washes off my tongue, whereas yours, it's fused to me taste buds, strong, dark and voracious, and it will be there forever. It's just how it should be. Miss your Eileen. You performed that at I did, the I arena. performed that pasta. Yes, I, I thought I'd heard um, you. Yes. And I think, I think Emma performed some of her poetry there as well, didn't she? She, she read some of it out. Yes, she read yes. some of Eileen's poetry out, yeah. Yeah, um, that's why I like doing this, because I, I'm very uneducated with poetry, I'll be honest with you, I'm a complete layperson, which is why it's nice to go out and just learn about people, even people who have passed away or people who have been on the scene, who've done some awesome awesome stuff. Mm. So that's why I like doing this. Mm. She, she was wonderful, and just before the pandemic, so so we started doing this thing called the 100 Club, Poets, Partners and Pandemanglist, where we would take a poet that we really liked and we would publish their pamphlet if there was unpublished. Publish their pamphlet, but we'd only print 100 copies of it. Good idea. So we did Jane James, then we did Mikey Southern, and they were great collections. And we were looking at who to do next. Mm. Um, but obviously, you sell all these at gigs, and of course, the pandemic has just wiped everything out. And one of the names, well, the name that was actually at the top of the list, we was all like Eileen Woodburge, because none of the gatekeepers will give her the time of day. I understand that. And she deserves it. But yeah, so that that was a perfect example of what we've been talking about. Do you know, um, that's exactly why I started Mini Poetry Press with the mini books that I showed you earlier, was because I've met so many brilliant poets who either have never been published or are too worried about sending their stuff off to be published or may only have written a couple of things, that when they perform them, they just literally light the room up. They're like, absolutely brilliant. And I want to be able to just say to them, like, let's take your one piece of work. Let's publish it. Let's get you over the fear of being published. Mm. You are now published. You can sell this. Every every author gets 50 copies to do with whatever they want. And then all you've got to do is just do that X number of times and you've got your, fir- and you've got your first collection out. Mm. So that's exactly what you're doing there with the 100 Club is mm. exactly what I had in mind for Mini Poetry Press, which is brilliant. It's what, yeah. what I love doing. Yeah. And like I said, <laughs> I mean, Mikey Southern, I, I love Mikey. So he's a wheelchair user. Uh, yes, I know so, him. Uh, yes. And I, I absolutely adore the ground he rolls on. I really do. He's one of the most genuinely funny. In fact, he, yeah, he's one of the most genuinely funny people I've ever met. Like, like just naturally talented. Yes. So funny, so fast. And I remember when we launched his pamphlet, and he just so like he got the got the pamphlet out, and he wheeled himself up to the mic, and he said, "There's two things I just do not understand, and I can't believe they've happened in this universe. One is Yo Martini are going to Wolves, and two is this pamphlet. <laughs> oh wow! And and you know to give him that opportunity, yeah. And now he's like published by um, Matthew. Well, that's what happens, isn't it? You know, sometimes somebody's just got to publish. I'm a big fan of Dylan Thomas. I said right at the beginning of the podcast, Dylan Thomas self-published his first collection. That shows you where we are. Mm. You know, his first 18 poems, self-published. So we just got to get more people seen and more people heard. Which brings me round to, I'm trying to think when the first time I saw you was. It must have been at one of your events because I can't think how paths would have crossed Worcester. So I must have been at a pastor event or a slam or something I can't, help me out I, I know you remember. sent some 
videos into pasta, didn't you? Yeah, but I think um, I'd already met you then because you. I think I. Had. It might. It may even have been Worcester. We did um, that arts place that's shut down at the side of the train station, Worcester yeah. Arts Workshop. Okay. We did, we did a gig there. I like Worcester actually, and and I've always I've always had nice gigs there. I don't like Telford. I hate Telford. <laughs> I've always died on my ass in Telford. Every gig. I I've don't even know Telford, that there is a poetry scene in um, Telford. It's stand up. I, I ah, did okay. about five stand up gigs in Telford, and I always died on my ass. <laughs> you get you get these like you just get these things for certain places. Telford, there's nothing wrong with Telford, but it's like, I hate Telford. Wait, why? Wait, what? Do you know? I just died on my ass every time I'm doing a gig there. I think maybe it was a, a, a yes we can't. Maybe it was an on a, oh, an online it, event. It might have been an online yes well, did, we can't. Did we you went. come to when when we had the mentoring event with Emma? Did you come to that? Um, there was there was one of the. I read my ode to Darlos somewhere, and I know Emma heard it. I'm trying to remember. No, I've some... heard it because I've took the mickey out of the fact that I, I always said I could be the poet laureate of Darlos, and now I can't because. <laughs> You you know, it's surprisingly how it's surprising <laughs> how many people are from Darleston who do poetry. That's a, that is a surprising thing, isn't it? And but I've got I've got a friend who's um, a TA at a secondary school in Blocks, which I live, and she's been working with this kid who's like been having a few issues. But she's got the kid to do some writing, and she actually showed the kid some of my poems on YouTube, and it got the kid writing poetry. It's, it's you know that thing of publishing people of just just yeah. getting work out there. Because the one thing I was going to ask you was about the fear of the microphone, which obviously you've worked through through doing stand up. Mm. Um, but there's still that thing, isn't there, about standing up that moment before you start to speak and that moment before you finish. Even I like sometimes stand in front of the mic and I think you know you're looking at the room, aren't you? You you kind of casing the place a little bit, exits, you know, and all that sort mm. of thing, and going. How's that for How's that for you? Or do you think you're over that that phase? I don't think you're ever over that phase, are you? Have that's, you ever stood, that's a really interesting question. Have you ever stood there and thought, "I wish I'd changed my set"? I nearly said that. Oh, every gig, but no, it's not every gig. I mean, obviously, we haven't had that many gigs since lockdown. I'm a bit better now because I kind of plan my set. I do tend to stick to what I've planned. Part of that planning will be, I'm ending with that poem and I'm going into that one. But it's kind of, one's down here and one's up there. So I've got to find a way of getting between them in that bit of spiel. And I'll sometimes have a rough idea how I'm doing it. But I am at the point now where I'll be like, oh, I'll, I'll sort it. I'll mm. do it. I'll, I'll find a way. But that is uh, just years and years of doing it. I'll sometimes... Most of the time, I'll know what I'm going to say first. Because, again, it's that initial, as long as you can kick off, you, you're okay. But, I mean, I, I remember, like, last year, I had to do a gig for the West Midlands Combined Authority, and it was at the Grand Theatre. There's about 100 people in the audience. And I, I have performed to bigger crowds than that. So, I wasn't nervous about that, but it was my first time performing at the Grand. And it was like, this is the Grand Theatre. I've, I've been there. You know what I mean? And it was of an afternoon as well, and Shrek the Musical was on other night. So, like, <laughs> there's all of these props for Shrek the Musical in the wings. And I really, I, it was, it took every ounce of self-control to not carry bits of the set onto <laughs> me. Because it was, look! Shrek's rock! But I knew what I was going to say. Put my water bottle on the table behind me 
moved, knocked the water bottle. Fortunately, the lid was on. Landed on the table, caused it to rake the stage. So he like leans forward. So it just rolled. And normally, like a bit more inexperienced, that'd be like, <gasps> and I was just like, oh, okay, look at it, and just dealt with it. But then that changed how I introduced yeah. the, the rest of it. And I just worked that in. I think that's the biggest problem on stage is when things go wrong or something unexpected happens. It's yeah. dealing with that. And be that forgetting your lines. I remember, you know, early early doors, I've, I've forgotten lines and it's completely freaked me out. Now, it's just like, forgot that. Give me a second. I'll sort it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's this one. Carry but, on. the, but the beauty of performance is, though, isn't it, that... Quite often, the audience don't know what your lines are. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so yeah. We're, we're beating ourselves up in our brain, but you could just carry on and Ooh. nobody would ever think, to, apart from the person who's, who's bought your book with them <laughs> and they're just going, mm hmm. <laughs> Mem memory's not trustworthy anyway. Yeah. So you just say to them, no, I did do that line. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> um, one thing I would say to people is when I was doing stand up, I did a lot of emceeing. So I used to MC an open 10 night at the Roadhouse in Birmingham, which I don't think is there anymore. But I used to do like every other Tuesday for probably about two, three years. And MCing a comedy night, you learn your chops quickly. You mm. have to. I'll bet. I'm grateful for that experience because like poetry audiences now, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's fine. Well, they're um, so supportive as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They are on your side and they do want you to succeed. One of the things we, we've done in the past, we've, we've run courses on the microphone stand. Yes. Because who teaches you how to use a microphone stand? Exactly. Exactly. And you walk up and you're nervous and there's this thing yeah. that's just... I'm quite too, tall, so it's, yeah. it's either two feet below you yeah. or... Or they've pushed it two feet above you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's turny bits and angled bits and what does what. And just giving people some time to learn how the thing moves. And also telling people, you know, go up and own the space. Not not be, you know, I'll, I'll go up and I'll be and all over the place. Steve will go up and he's very centred and quiet, but he still owns the space. It's, it's not about being big. It's just about making that space. Put your water down. Yeah. Put your book down. Get yourself settled. Because the audience won't think, get on with it. The audience will think, you're relaxed. Yeah. And if you're relaxed, I'm relaxed because you know what you're doing. Everything's going to be all right. I think that's what I liked when, when my son went to Verve because the MC there was very astute, I thought. And actually beforehand, come up and said, do you want to come and stand up before we get started? Come and see what it feels like. Look what the lights are like. Showed in the mic and moved, got the just for. And it, I think it kind of settled him down a little bit. Mm. Whereas if he'd just been called up, he'd probably just gone, oh, I'm, I'm not doing it. Yeah. But the other thing I would say is use the silence as well. Like I see a lot, lot of poets. I, I try not to give advice to, to poets because what the hell do I know, right? And I'm just like, you do you. But quite often people will either stand up and try and explain it for, the, for five or ten minutes before they do the poem, or they'll just stop immediately and i'm like you need the audience are already going to be a minute or two behind you because it's the first time they're hearing it they're processing what you're saying own that first few seconds of silence and don't be afraid of it it's just like take a breath think about the pace that you're going to read at 
uh, or perform it at, and then just use that silence to, in, to your advantage. And But it's all stuff that comes with experience, isn't oh, it? Oh, abso- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all character building. <laughs> it is all character building. <laughs> all character building. Per Sage will always talk about she once did a gig in Warsaw Art Gallery to the rock driller statue. Okay. There was no one there. So she just did the gig anyway to the statue. Oh. You know, I've done comedy. It's got to be heartbreaking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I've done comedy in front of the telly that's shown the England. I've done comedy in a boxing ring. Okay. In between boxing matches. Wow. While they're serving food. You can't do anything there. Absolutely. It was a great gig. I loved it. Yeah. Because I have, in the past, sabotaged my own gigs. Right. Huh? On purpose. Yeah. Or, okay. So I, I've deliberately done things to send it off the rails. With and purpose. Yes, but, but okay. to the point that, like, I am going to derail this train. It's going to be chaos, but it'll be fine. And I, I, I kept thinking, well, why, why do I do that? Like, in my day job, if things go wrong, I'll go up like a bottle of pop. But when I'm on stage, I purposefully tried to make things go wrong. And I realised that what it was, it's actually me cheating. It's, it's all about expectation. If you're expected to do a good job, you've got to do a good job. If something goes wrong and the person who expects you to do the good job doesn't know it's gone wrong, you're still expected to do a good job. Right. But actually I can't now because something's gone wrong that you don't know about and it's nothing to do with me. It's that person over there and now I'm stressed. However, if we all, as a group, something goes wrong, your expectation of what I'm doing is actually now come down. Right, okay. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I get that. Um, so it's I, reading your audience, understanding yeah. your audience a little bit before you uh, start. There was, there was one, when I was doing stand-up, I wrote this little bit of stand-up about Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings had come out. It wasn't really very good. I was emceeing at Roadhouse. Doors opened, and in walked uh, a stag do where everyone was dressed up as Lord of the Rings characters, and there was about 50 of them. Oh, heavens. <laughs> so I just stand there and let them all walk in. <laughs> and I heard someone in the audience go, get out of this one then. Can you imagine? And then I did the material that I dismissed that I'd written about Lord of the Rings, and it went down a fucking storm, because they all thought I was making it up on the spot. Their expectations are gone. Yeah, down. yeah, yeah. That's quite clever. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was a real lesson that night. It was like, oh, I don't have any Lord of the Rings poetry. Just <laughs> <laughs> for emergencies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think sometimes I sabotage things, and and that's actually also when I know I'm comfortable on stage. I had to do some entertainment for TEDx in Wolverhampton. I uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about your football poem at TEDx <laughs> Wolverhampton. That was great. You know, it was the first TEDx in Wolverhampton. They asked me to do this. They asked me to do some poetry. It's not not a poetry audience. Um, It's a long day. So it starts at like 10, finishes at 3, but people are milling around from 8. They wanted me there from half 8 in the morning. And I wasn't on until like half 3. And there's like 150 people... I was nervous, and you've got that nervous energy all day. Yeah. So I was I was in a bit of a state before I went on. Of course, the moment I started, I was fine. But then I'd planned all my poems. I'd rehearsed them. 
knew what my set was. And and this was one gig where I'd actually planned what I was going to say between the poems. And I'd rehearsed all that. So I knew what was going on. By the end of one of the poems, I was just like, ah, I've got this. And I just went off book. And that's when I know I've got this uncomfortable. When I'm emceeing, because you never know what's going on in people's heads. <laughs> there, was, there was one yes we can't. I'll always go back to this. I was due to fly out to Seattle as part of the 1448 festival, okay. funnily enough. I was due to fly out to Seattle on the Tuesday, and this was the Sunday night. So they're all kind of taking the piss out of me. I'm going to Seattle, and you know, someone gets up and they, they do a poem about Canuck Chase. And they said, I'm going to do a poem about a place that's much better than Seattle. Does this poem about Canuck Chase? And then I went off, and I knew there was a joke there. But as I started saying the sentence, I didn't know where it was. And it was just, I was that comfortable that night that it was, my brain will work it out by the time I get to the end of the sentence. So I just went on that stage and I just went, you're absolutely right, Canuck Chase is better than Seattle because there's no way in Seattle you will ever bump into Stan Collymore masturbating in a Land Rover. <laughs> And and it was work because from my point of view, it was like halfway through that sentence, I don't even know what the punchline is. <laughs> and I'm just trusting the fact my brain will get me there. And it did. But again, that's experience. And and I keep saying, you know, if people MC, particularly if they MC poultry gigs, you, you haven't got to be funny. You've just got to be steady handed. It's still that. People want to relax. They want to be entertained. And that's why I like the poetry events because they're like, I'm ready, you know, mm. I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you've got to tell me. And um, there is definitely, poultry audiences are, I'm looking forward to this. Yes. I want to be entertained. Comedy audiences are, entertain, entertain me. me. you better. And Try and entertain a, yeah, me if you can. There's a very different vibe to that. Yeah. Would you mind telling us one of your newer poems? Shall we, shall we do Spider Brendan? Do Spider Brendan. <laughs> um, this, this was one I wrote for pasta and the theme was childhood so the idea is with pasta because there's a theme and just warm everyone up and you know it's always horrible being first i will always write something on the theme and go right i'll i'll start us off right and i was playing around with this and and this is what came up because grew up in Dalwest and thinking about art being 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 artistic and being working class it's a strange pursuit at 11, he spent most of the autumn term doodling daft faces onto the sperm that lazed across the pages of Biology 101. We all did, quite frankly, but his best ones looked a bit like Youngie's mum. At 12, on the walls around town, he sprained spider. Started off with crude childish lines before the designs got tighter. Soon, like we were eating five gobstoppers, were silent, admiring them. At 13... Thanks to a library book on New York subway graffiti and some shifty spray can thievery, his spiders became 3D. It had quite an effect on us when we'd reach out our hand to touch them and find they were flat. At 14, while we're all trying to get off with Emma Salisbury, he's painted a picture of a spider catching a bumblebee on the door of the cop shop, right under their CCTV. He even painted a spider invasion across the door of the Chief Super's Austin aggravation. At 15, after marking more of the town than a pissy dog, he's decided to hang upside down off the overpass. There, he's painted a spider towering 
over a silhouetted city, examining the tableau through a looking glass. We don't know anything about metaphor or simile. Knew it looked good, though. At 16, this story gets to the crazy part, because this egg, chips and beans, Botticelli, this council pop Pollock, this UB40 Clee, only got an E in GCSE art. So that's that one. Again, what we're saying about it being, you know, you're drilling and you get things that are really, really specific. Now, it's things like using phrases like gobstoppers. Even if you don't know what a gobstopper is, it works. This is why AI can never write poetry. <laughs> this is why AI can never write poetry. <laughs> you know, cop shop, Austin aggravation, those little things. Even if you've never heard the term Austin aggravation in that context, you get it. You can follow the emotion of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, going, going to Leeds, there was the, someone says to me about, you know, will you tone down the accent? No. Yeah. Tone up the accent. They'll, they'll go with it. We need more differentiation between poets. I don't want to go to an event where it's all street poets. Well, there's nothing wrong with street poets, everyone. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. But it, but it is about that mix. It is about the mix. You want that mix. So where do people find you online? I'm not on Facebook. Come off Twitter. Not on TikTok. Well, you kind of are on TikTok. I'm not anymore. I, I, I saw your video I am tonight on TikTok. On yeah. TikTok. Yeah, I am on TikTok, but I've deleted the app. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, What's your website? Uh, my website is davethepit.co.uk. DaveThePit.co.uk. Yes. Um, basically, Dave the Pit. That's where I am. So um, I'm on Mastodon because fuck Twitter. I'm all right. Oh, it's I'll just... be honest with you. I don't really engage with a lot of platforms I'm on. I just... I just share my poetry to them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm on Mastodon. Um, obviously, Poets, Practice and Pandemonium lists are on, on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, I, I, I've I got a YouTube channel. I haven't put anything up there for a while, but I am going to be putting something up. So... I will put a link to your YouTube channel yes. uh, in the description. Uh, there's some there's some fun things on there. Someone reminded me of a video the other day. It was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. That was quite good. Again, it's it's that thing that when you don't get a lot of engagement, so why bother? It takes a but, while. Yeah. Most of the time, especially with, I find, with things like YouTube and TikTok, you're not immediately talking to another human. That's the difference. You're talking to mm. a computer algorithm. You've got to give the computer algorithm what it wants before you can give the human what they want. It's and, terrible. And then all these years of like putting stuff out there and you know sharing my work, you know, just never really had much engagement. Last year for my birthday, my wife was like, what, what do you want? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Get me a wildlife camera. Right? So I got a wildlife camera in the garden. Turns out we've got like foxes and stuff. I, we never knew. It's great. So I started sticking the footage on YouTube so like my wife could see it and the family could see it. Since October, I've now got 157 subscribers. <laughs> and I'm literally, all I'm doing Top and tail the videos. Bit of like a couple of transitions, whack it up. It's the least work I've ever put into anything. <laughs> and it's getting more engagement than I've ever had. World's you know, nuts. It's it's only a small step from that to going back to what we said at the beginning about you writing poetry about nature that rhymes. Well, yeah, write, write a poem about some flowers. Um, and then I'll die and I'll complete it. That will complete poetry. Um, that's when everyone will respect me then, when I'm a dead white man writing about flowers. Dave Pitt, thank you very much. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. We've been going on a bit, haven't we?
<laughs> going on a bit. And do you know what? We've only had one cup of tea, Dave. I, I mean, I'm going to have to leave a, a comment in your comic book. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's have another brew. Right. Dave is a great storyteller, down-to-earth poet and a genuinely lovely man we could literally have talked for hours. We did talk for hours. Dave has a YouTube channel, Dave the Pit, and it's really well worth seeking out. I'll put the link in the description. And you can always find him somewhere in the West Midlands as one third of poets, prattlers and pandemonialists, though he'll have to tell you which one. Now then, two books I've been enjoying recently. The first I've had for a little while, it's a short collection called Happiness FM by Mary Dickens and published by Burning Eye. From poems like How to Do Your Bucket List on the Cheap to Neighbour from Hell, Mary Dickens never fails to entertain through her exploration and contradictions of 21st century life. The second book is a recent release, A Caprisoned Elephant by Brian Comer, published by Black Pear Press. Now, I've been fortunate to share a space with Brian several times, and his poetry is beautifully formed and always so diverse in its subject matter, from While You Wait for the Lights to Change, a list poem of all the things we think we can achieve while sitting at traffic lights. And I also really like Soda, Pretzels and Beer, a beautifully imaginative and descriptive poem about the everyday bluster of a rare summer's day. Links to both of these books are in the description. Thank you for joining me on The Poetic Podcast. My name is Jay Rosanna, and I do hope you will join me and our fabulous guests again. Until then, have a wonderful time exploring poetry. Bye-bye.